This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, I'm Alice Brennan and you're listening to Background Briefing. This week, burning down the house. In an extraordinary week in politics, we bring you an extraordinary episode of the show. After being ousted by his party and stepping down as the country's PM, on Wednesday, Malcolm Turnbull wrote a letter to his constituents in Wentworth. I don't want to dwell on recent shocking and shameful events, he wrote. A malevolent and pointless week of madness that disgraced our parliament and appalled our nation. As you know, I've always said that the best place for former PMs is out of the parliament, and recent events amply demonstrate why. And just like that, Malcolm Turnbull was gone. The weakened Malcolm Turnbull will face a divided party room when Liberal MPs meet in Canberra. Earlier this morning I called the Prime Minister to advise him that it was my judgement that the majority of the party room no longer supported his leadership. I too have tendered my resignation. We do have breaking news here. The successful candidate was Scott Morrison. It was described as madness by many and I think it's difficult to describe it in any other way. It seems these political assassinations are really becoming an unfortunate habit. When Kevin Rudd was rolled by Julia Gillard back in 2010, the country was shocked. A sitting Prime Minister had never been so brutally taken out by their own party in their first term. Three years later, though, Rudd got his revenge and returned as PM by in turn knifing Julia. Again, no one could believe it. Two years after that, it was Liberal Prime Minister Tony Abbott's turn, usurped by Malcolm Turnbull. And then Turnbull's time was up. What most of us believed was a bizarre and somewhat savage anomaly has now somehow become the norm in Australian politics. Today we ask, what is this leadership turmoil doing to our democracy? In the first of three parts, Alex Mann reports from the chaos in Canberra. We start the story outside the doors of Parliament House. Did you know politicians play basketball? Well, there goes Graham Parrott and I think it was Ed Husick and someone else I didn't recognise. Bouncing basketballs, joking on their way in. You can tell those guys are definitely on the Labor side of politics. It's 7am on Thursday, the last sitting day of Parliament. And while a clutch of Labor MPs are shooting hoops, the Federal Liberal Party is tearing itself to pieces. Little do I know it now, but Malcolm Turnbull has just over 24 hours left as Prime Minister. You haven't heard anything, Steph? Um... Dutton's doing something. Yes, that's all I've heard. It is hard to know what to believe on days like today. I've had very little sleep and the rumours are going in every direction. So we're standing outside the doors, effectively waiting for any of those politicians, mainly Liberals, to tell us exactly what the current situation is. Good morning. How are you? Have you seen the petition that's going round? Have you signed it? Why so quiet? This is an all too familiar scene. And I can't help that sinking feeling. It's like I've seen all this before. We here in Australia are about to get our seventh Prime Minister in 11 years. That's if you count Kevin Rudd twice. 
and our parliament is in chaos again. Rowan, just one last question. How much does all of this actually help? You know, all of this drama? Oh, look, there, there, there is no doubt that turmoil within, you know, disunity is death. Everybody knows that uh, whatever this is, it needs to be dealt with. Whatever it is, it should be over. There's this kind of savagery that has come to define the political culture in Australia. We're the coup capital of Western democracy. Our revolving door of leadership has made us the butt of jokes around the world. No PM has seen out a full term in office since John Howard lost in 2007. Four of our last five prime ministers were ousted not at an election, but by opponents from within their own party. What's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different outcome. And, you know, that's what's going to happen if they think that this is the way you can continue to run this country. Overnight, the Liberal Party's right-wing agitators tried to win over Far North Queensland MP Warren Ench. He's a 20-year veteran of the party and a fiercely independent small-L Liberal. Do you define yourself as a Conservative? No, absolutely not. On Thursday, the insurgents asked him to join their cause. I said, well, I'm not going to. I don't want to spill. I think this is bloody insane. When I first heard the whisper that this was going to happen, and I walked in, I thought, oh, no, not again. We just, you know, 50 metres before the finish line, why do we want to change jockeys? You know, good or bad, we've really got to ride this horse to the finish line, and we've just got to make the best of what we can. But you and, didn't. Well, I, I did. I did. This morning, outside Parliament House, Dutton's key backers aren't talking. Tony Abbott strides across the car park and the media pack swarms around him. What happened to no wrecking, no sniping? The cameraman stacks it, walking backwards up the curb. Watching all of this theatre, you kind of got to ask yourself, what do the people bringing all of this on actually want from this? What is the end game? What is their actual vision for the country? And how does this help? At 10.15am, Dutton survives a referral to the High Court by one vote. The ABC's Parliament House newsroom erupts. 68, 69. Just, Turnbull could have... At 10.46, the ABC confirms that Scott Morrison is going to contest the leadership. Half an hour later, 10 government MPs offer their resignations, and then, just before noon, the government abandons question time altogether, and Malcolm Turnbull fronts the press. Australians will be rightly appalled by what they're witnessing in their nation's parliament today and in the course of this week. Now, the House uh, has been adjourned at the request of Mr Dutton, and so I now await a letter uh, with the signatures of a majority of the party room, if I receive, which is 43. If I receive that, then I will convene a new party room meeting. It takes less than 24 hours for Dutton's backers to get the signatures. In the end, Warren Ench agrees to sign, but only if he's the last one on the list. I said, I will sign it, but I will only sign it if I am number 43. 
I then made the decision that I was going to make that signature count. But I thought if there was going to be a party room meeting, I needed to make a point on this. And that's when I wrote underneath my signature for Dr. Brendan Nelson. After John Howard lost the 2007 election to Kevin Rudd, Brendan Nelson was chosen to lead the Liberals. But he only lasted a year. The man who replaced him was Malcolm Turnbull. And I thought that was the start of what I believe to be a cancer on both sides. And I thought if we can bring a focus on the fact that, you know, this started with the dreadful treatment of a very good leader, Brendan Nelson, uh, then I think uh, let's try and cauterise this now, get rid of the culture that has clearly been created, and let's see if we can start. We get leaders there with a clean set of hands. Word of Warren Inch's signature quickly reaches the ABC newsroom. It's on. No, no, all good, all good. This chaotic week is quickly coming to an end. I follow the ABC's political reporter, Tom Eagledon, out the door and toward the Liberal Party room. Check one, two, one, two. Tom, do you mind if I just ask you a quick question on our way there? Sure. Um, so what are we walking into here? This is the much-awaited noon showdown uh, for the Liberal Party spill, the second one we've had this week. Um, pretty extraordinary, that, uh, that fact alone, that we've had two spills here in one week. And uh, this, uh, you know, this is the, the, the closing minutes, I guess, of Malcolm Turnbull's Prime Ministership. As we rush down the stairs and along the never-ending hallways of Parliament House, there's adrenaline, but also this sense of disbelief. Yet again, the business of government, of policy-making and setting an agenda for the country, all of that has been pushed to the side by cutthroat internal party politics. And even for seasoned political reporters like Tom, who live and breathe this sort of drama, it feels like something's different this time, and that the public have had enough. It's hard not to be swept up in the drama, as I say, and I know people outside the building, voters say they, they hate all of this, but I think you know, most of us kind of get into the drama to some degree. But that said, I think we'd all prefer to be reporting about policy. Uh, it might, might be a bit drier, it might not you know, you know, get the blood racing as much, but ultimately we're here and I think politicians are here because this is about the direction of the country and I'm not sure these things really help with that. Good afternoon, as you're all aware, there was a ballot conducted in the party room for the leadership of the Liberal Party. The successful candidate was Scott Morrison, and he won this vote by 45 votes to 40 for Peter Dutton. In relation to the deputy's position, this was won in a uh, overwhelming sense, in a majority, an absolute majority, by Josh Frydenberg. So there we go, that's it. Scott Morrison's Prime Minister, Frydenberg is the deputy. And one of the journalists here is already tweeting that word is coming out from Dutton's camp saying, fuck Scott. If that's the way Dutton's backers are approaching this latest leadership battle, it's hard to imagine that this is going to be the end of it. What that means for what's left of this parliament, I have no idea. I read the full message from Twitter to Liberal MP Warren Ench. It's not over. Fight continues. Fuck Scott. 
Did you hear that? No, I did not. And I tell you what, if I did see it and I was aware of who actually sent it, I would be ripping them a second one. You know, these guys, you know, anything like that just is what people hate, absolutely hate. The voting public hate it. If members of the conservative wing of your party are already saying this stuff, I mean, what hope do you think we have of actually putting these leadership battles to bed? Well, I think that there are enough of us there that are, I guess showing some balance and some common sense in this area here. But at the end of the day, if they continue this, they're going to have to be held publicly responsible for their actions. Alex Mann with that story. Up next on Background Briefing, bleeding votes to the right. Reporter David Lewis looks at the ongoing rift between Conservatives and moderates in the Liberal Party and he asks, what do the so-called insurgents really want? I warned on day one that Malcolm Turnbull was a narcissist. There's been a lot of talk this week about whose side people are on. Do things that are consistent with our values and you'll do well. We've witnessed a very deliberate effort to pull the Liberal Party to the right. Whenever a fight breaks out, we instinctively ask, who started it? On the one hand, we have Liberal moderates pointing the finger at the party's right wing, and on the other, Conservatives who accuse Malcolm Turnbull of denying them a seat at the table. In the next part of this special episode of Background Briefing, David Lewis asks, if this group is influential enough to topple a sitting Prime Minister, what is it they really want for Australia? I'm outside Endeavour Field, which is better known as Shark Park, and Cronulla are about to take on the Newcastle Knights in the NRL. Now, what does any of this have to do with who's running the country? Well, the 30th Prime Minister of Australia likes three things, family, faith and footy. In fact, Scott Morrison is the Sharks' number one ticket holder. And I want to know what his fellow fans think about his ascent to the top job and whether ScoMo, as he's affectionately known in these parts, can make peace with the so-called conservative insurgency that toppled Malcolm Turnbull. How does it feel to have a Sharks fan as Prime Minister? That's awesome, yeah. ScoMo, go ScoMo. You like Scott Morrison? Oh, absolutely, he's a good bloke. Oh, we're stoked. Yeah, he's a great supporter and he's a great bloke. It must be the first time we've had anyone of that calibre supporting Sharks, so up, up, Cronulla. (laughs) Do you think that um, he's safe in the top job, or do you think the Conservative insurgency will eventually come for him in the same way they did Turnbull? Yes, they'll definitely come for him, definitely. While Abbott stays in Parliament, I think they'll come for him, but I think the voters will come for him before that. Well, the consensus among fans at Shark Park seems to be that even if they don't know Scott Morrison terribly well, they still like the idea of having one of their own in the top job. I suppose there's a sense in the Shire that ScoMo is their man. But what about the right of the Liberal Party, the people who turfed out Malcolm Turnbull? Is Scott Morrison their man? He may have emerged victorious after the leadership spill, but let's not forget Peter Dutton may not be in the lodge, but his Conservative supporters still managed to roll a sitting PM. 
So who are these powerful voices? What do they want? And what's their vision for Australia? So what I'll do is just get you to introduce yourself by your name and title. Conchetta Fioravanti-Wells, Senator. Conchetta Fioravanti-Wells is a Liberal Senator for New South Wales. She's one of the most prominent Conservative voices in the party. And now that she's resigned from the front bench, she's even more inclined to speak up. Unlike many of my colleagues, I actually manage my own email account. And so I have a very good sense of what's happening, what's coming in, what people are saying. Senator Firavanti-Wells says her constituents often complained that Malcolm Turnbull was too left-wing, that under his watch the Liberal Party had abandoned its Conservative base. I've had all sorts of people who have approached me and said, uh, Connie, I think that, you know, we cannot win the next federal election with Malcolm Turnbull. Senator Firavanti-Wells points to a number of policies unpopular with Conservatives. Among them is the decision to legalise same-sex marriage. She says many Liberal voters in multicultural communities opposed the reform. And as the daughter of Italian migrants, she felt she had to defend their position. For many migrants to this country, marriage is the bedrock institution of their culture. It's the bedrock institution of their lives. This was a challenge not just about marriage, but to a basic tenant of their beliefs. Analysts are quick to point out the idea for a plebiscite actually came from Conservatives. It was Peter Dutton's suggestion, Tony Abbott's policy and Malcolm Turnbull's obligation. In the end, 62% of Australians voted in favour of same-sex marriage. Senator Firavanti-Wells wasn't one of them. The same-sex marriage issue created amongst the conservative base of the party a sense that the value of family life as being fundamental to the well-being of society, which is one of the basic tenets of our liberal constitution, were eroded. If it were up to you and other Conservatives in the Liberal Party, would you repeal same-sex marriage? I think now that it is legislated, it's important to ensure that religious freedoms are protected. The debate over climate change was another trigger for the Conservative uprising. Just weeks before the first leadership spill, Malcolm Turnbull secured a major victory. He convinced the coalition party room to support his signature energy policy. At a press conference, Mr Turnbull was beaming. It has the broadest support of any energy policy that has, in in, in my time in politics, and possibly a lot longer than that. But in the lead-up to Peter Dutton's challenge, Mr Turnbull was forced to retreat. The National Energy Guarantee required the electricity sector to cut emissions by 26%. Mr Turnbull ditched that proposal, although it wasn't enough to reassure the rebels. They've never really trusted him. And this quote from 2009 helps to explain why. I will not lead a party that is not as committed to effective action on climate change as I am. Obviously, the energy debate galvanised a particular base and obviously the concerns about energy and coal-fired power stations and the Paris Agreement. All of this, all of this has all conflated into this concern, this perception by our Conservative base that their views 
their ideas, their beliefs are being trashed and what's worse, being trashed under a Liberal government. She says these disheartened voters have abandoned the coalition. She cites July's by-election in the marginal Queensland seat of Longman as an example. Pauline Hanson's One Nation secured 16% of the vote, helping Labor to victory. We're bleeding votes to the right. There is no doubt about that. Our votes are not going to the Labor Party. They're going to Pauline Hanson. They're going to others, some to Australian Conservatives. So the reality is that if you want to recapture that vote, then you have to position yourself with a leader that's going to speak directly to those people. Throughout the turmoil, Senator Firavanti-Wells backed Peter Dutton, but the member for Dixon miscalculated or misrepresented his support and lost twice, first to Malcolm Turnbull and then to Scott Morrison. It was a major setback for Conservatives who caused so much chaos for so little gain. We have a long road to haul now and it's important that everybody is on the same page and we hope that this does result in a greater degree of unity and that will be ultimately a matter for Mr Morrison and for his Cabinet. But if three months down the track the Cabinet is operating in much the same way it did under Malcolm Turnbull, it's likely Conservatives such as yourself will feel alienated and ignored. Would you strike again? Well, I have to say that um, at this point in time uh, we'll see. I think there's a generous spirit in the Australian public to give prime ministers, new prime ministers, a bit of a honeymoon period. So we'll see how that honeymoon period goes. But the most recent opinion poll suggests voters are in no mood to forgive and forget. Labor's two-party lead has jumped to 56%, with the coalition trailing behind with 44%. Bill Shorten never seemed to catch up to Malcolm Turnbull in the preferred PM stakes, but he's comfortably ahead of Scott Morrison, 39% to 33%. Well, David, the news poll was not unexpected, but I'm always optimistic. Bert Van Manen is strangely upbeat, given he came so close to losing his southeast Queensland electorate of Ford at the last federal election. What is your margin? It's 0.62 of a percent, so 531 votes. Yikes. Okay, and uh, that would make you, what, the uh, MP with the most marginal electorate in Queensland? Is that correct? Uh, I think Michelle Landry and I are pretty close, so I think we have about the same margin. Mr Van Manen doesn't want to be typecast as a conservative or a moderate. He says he's a mixture of both. But when it comes to picking a side, he chose Team Turnbull. If you look at the situation that we were in, we were 51-49 in the polls and the Prime Minister had a a 20-point lead in preferred Prime Ministership. I didn't feel there was a need for a change last week. Officials from the Queensland Liberal National Party disagreed. They feared losing half of their seats in the Sunshine State under Malcolm Turnbull. They said the only way to avoid disaster was to install Peter Dutton as leader. You weren't buying the argument that supporters of Peter Dutton put forward, that the member for Dixon was the best chance of saving the furniture at the next federal election? Well, obviously, from my actions last week, no, I didn't buy that argument. Although he opposed the revolt, Bert Van Manen was powerless to stop it. Now he's left with the unenviable task of explaining the madness to his constituents. What are voters in your electorate saying about the chaos of recent weeks? 
Well, they were disappointed, and rightly so, because whilst ever we're talking about ourselves, we're not focused on doing the job that the Australian public are expecting us to do in terms of governing the country and dealing with the issues that they're facing. And that means a return to John Howard's description of the party as a broad church. I reject this idea of a single base for any of the major parties. And that's the whole point. If there was a base in the technical sense of the word, in other words, that it's a vast, massive party all thinking in the same way, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Dr Paul Williams is a political analyst and lecturer at Queensland's Griffith University. So there's in fact at least two bases inside the Liberal Party, just like there's at least two bases inside the Labor Party. And you could even say there are two Green parties. Dr Williams says Scott Morrison will have to please two very distinct groups of voters. That's the problem for the Liberal Party and especially the LNP in Queensland where you've got some of those very conservative voters in regional parts of Australia who are bleeding away to the One Nation Party and the Catters Australian Party. But there's also a progressive base, obviously, in the you know, downtown Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra, Perth and Adelaide. And to think that these are just somehow just a, a handful of inner city latte sippers is really to underestimate the number of people whom that uh, Turnbull faction represents. We're talking millions of people. Don't go anywhere. We've got so much more for you on Background Briefing today. As politicians plot and execute one another's demise, what is the cost to our democracy? Trust in politicians is at an all-time low, and voters have had enough. The bubble, the selfishness Selfishness. of some people in this place is just breathtaking. Vengeance, personal ambition. The people that I represent are absolutely fed up to the back teeth. The public hate what is going on at the moment. The plot points of our latest political assassination would make for a very compelling soap opera. But the years of political carnage come at a cost, leaving behind a public distrustful of politicians and cynical about the institutions of government. And of course, this also means there's been less time for actual governing. In the new era of the 30th Prime Minister Scott Morrison, Sarah Dingle investigates the fallout from a decade of political turmoil. A new Prime Minister is supposed to enjoy a political honeymoon with the electorate, but today it seems like there's not a lot of love for government in Sydney's CBD. They may claim it's because of the NEG, but it's all just personal politics, ego, revenge, ultimately. Tony Abbott won't rest until he's Prime Minister again, even though it will never happen, he's not going to stop trying. How much trust do you have in our political class? None whatsoever. I think they're a bunch of clowns, they're morons, idiots, and they're all self-serving. When Malcolm Turnbull lost his party leadership last week, Liberals outside Canberra despaired. Increasingly, parties like the Liberal Party, parties like the Labor Party are becoming unrepresentative of the mainstream of the Australian community. Terry Barnes, a former Howard government advisor, will be the first to tell you that he's not a Turnbull man. But this latest leadership assassination has made him fearful for the future of his party. Perhaps the Liberal Party won't even survive being in opposition. And that is the real fear that I have as a a long-term Liberal Party member and somebody who cares about the values of the centre-right. Do you think the Liberal Party is heading to a split? Well, it's barely keeping it together in government. I almost think it's absolutely certain the way things are going that it won't in opposition. The Liberal Party may not survive in its current form on the basis of where it's been over the last five years. 
the party will only be relevant if it stays in the mainstream, and that means the mainstream centre-right, not the hard religious right, not the hard nationalist right. I've come to a homestead in the Southern Highlands, a genteel pocket of New South Wales countryside. This is my Thank you. office here. Oh, there you go, my GPS is still going. Yeah. It did work, yeah. This is where Michael Yabsley is based, conveniently located just off the highway between Canberra and Sydney. We're in his office, a room crammed with political biographies, vinyl records, collectibles, and an English Springer Spaniel called and Clementine. Her stable mate is there. His name's Winston. They're named after the Churchills, Winston and Clementine. Michael Yabsley was a state Liberal minister in the Griner government before becoming federal treasurer of the Liberal Party from 2008 to 2010. He says the actions of conservative plotters have done the party no favours. They destroyed a prime ministership. They did irreparable damage to what is the most successful political party in World War II history in Australia. They did enormous damage to the institution of Parliament. They shattered the reputations of a number of good people who should have known better. Although he now lives on a bush property called Wombat Hollow, he's far from isolated. Is that where you yeah. hold functions down there, yeah, the, yeah. the White Pavilion? Yeah, yeah we, we have larger functions there. That's where... Um, Malcolm Turnbull spoke when he was here. And Scott Morrison? Uh, Scott, we've got another venue over to the right. Michael Yabsley now runs the Wombat Hollow Forum, which describes itself as a place where bright and creative minds engage with discerning audiences. He also counts himself a mate of Tony Abbott, a friendship which he says spans 40 years. But after last week... He's calling on Mr Abbott to leave politics. I think as a friend, the most useful thing I could say to Tony Abbott is, Tony, I think it's time to hang up the gloves and ride off into the sunset. I think the Liberal Party's healing process would be accelerated if Tony Abbott were to vacate. If the party leadership continues to spill its own blood... Michael Yabsley says many of the rank-and-file members will leave. And on both sides, the party's bases are already shrinking. This is a huge problem for modern-day politics, says Michael Yabsley, one which no-one has solved. And so a very significant part of the challenge is to work out how you still have those people on board without requiring them to turn up on a cold Monday night for three hours to sit through the most boring meeting that they'll ever experience, pay their 50 bucks a year membership and be involved in something that is, frankly, quite unfulfilling. You think being a member of the Liberal Party is unfulfilling? Absolutely. Um, I think Liberal Party membership in New South Wales is down to less than 7,000. Now, for what is meant to be a mass membership party, uh, this is a joke. Danielle Wood is a program director at think tank the Grattan Institute. So trust in government has been falling, particularly in the last decade, and after the last election it was at the lowest point since 2001. We know that certain groups give money to political parties. We have some visibility over that, but not necessarily good visibility. And that secrecy, I think, partly drives um, voter suspicion about what's going on. 
The Grattan Institute has been looking into the extent of political donations for six months, and they've released some of their findings exclusively to the ABC. We know that there was $62 million in income to parties last year that we are not able to tell where it's from. And over the decade, about 40% of political party funds are, are actually you know, not able to be broken down any further. When Danielle Wood and her team were able to trace where the money was coming from, they realised it was heavily concentrated. 5% of donors contributed more than 50% of the declared donations of the major political parties. So who are the 5%? Danielle Wood says on the Labor side, it's the unions, in particular the SDA, United Voice and the CFMEU. And on the Liberal Party side, it's fundraising outfits like the Cormac Foundation and individual donors like mining figure Paul Marks. Michael Yabsley wants political donations cut to a minimum. If we continue down the path of allowing relatively large amounts of money to be donated to political parties, there will continue to be a scandal a week surrounding political donations. He wants to cap all political donations at $500. If 2% of the 17.5 million voting population in Australia gave an average of $200, you would put together a kitty of between 50 and $60 million that would be spread amongst the political parties. That's enough. Michael Yabsley was also the founding chair of the Millennium Forum, a Liberal fundraising body in New South Wales. I've had many conversations with many donors who have said, you know, I want to give a substantial amount of money, but you know, I would also like to see a particular minister or a particular political leader. Now, you know, I've got to emphasise that is not a corrupt action in itself. But what I am saying is that It's not a good look. Would you call it soft corruption? I would call it soft corruption in a very, very small number of cases. Emeritus Professor of Politics Judith Brett says constantly knifing a leader not only alienates the community, it makes it hard to get things done, particularly on the big issues. One of the costs is we don't have our political elite focusing on the tasks of governing. So I think that's a fairly big cost. Malcolm Turnbull's Prime Ministership was the latest in a long series of Australian political leaderships to be brought undone in part by climate change. I asked Judith Brett, why is this issue the giant killer? Climate denialism has become like an identity issue on the right. And so whenever there's a whiff that somebody takes climate change really seriously or thinks it's a really top-order priority... um, the right organisers against them. In recent times, she says, the Liberal Party has managed to get around this by focusing instead on electricity prices. Here's Scott Morrison in his first press conference as Prime Minister. Our government is going to put electricity prices down. We will put in place what we have said from the ACCC report, which is to provide the safety net on price. The abolition of penalty rates or the lowering of penalty rates doesn't do a great deal for people's weekly budgets. There's transport costs. I mean, there's a lot of other things that could be focused on. So I see the really intense focus on energy bills as really being a sort of surrogate for climate change denial on the right of the party. I put this to former Tony Abbott advisor Terry Barnes. 
No, I don't think so. I actually think it's because that's where ordinary Australians are actually focusing their attention. They don't really care about renewables. They don't really care about uh, coal or gas-fired power. On the conservative side, it is a case of lower power bills first, reliable energy supply second, and emissions reduction third. Uh, And again, it's a debate about what the balance between those interests actually is. I go back to former Federal Liberal Party Treasurer Michael Yabsley walking through the bush on his property. A Lowy Institute poll uh, a couple of months ago found that the majority of Australians are prepared to wear significant cost for Australia to address climate change, though. Do you think the Liberal Party is out of step with Australia on this one? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think there's an acceptance that it's, a, that it's a real issue. I think the challenge is to get it onto the political agenda. Judith Brett says... That's what a leader's for. I think climate change is very much about leadership. It's about people being told what the scientific evidence is. It's about people being told what the risks are that we're running for the planet. It's really a question of political leadership. And the political leadership in the Liberal Party and in the National Party on this is abysmal. Do you think climate change is an issue that should be a bipartisan one, like defence, for instance? Well, yes, I certainly do. And, I mean, it's bipartisan in the United Kingdom. It's too red-hot as an issue um, to become a bipartisan issue. And it's clearly not going to be the subject of a conscience vote. And so I think it's going to continue to be a political battleground. And that, says social historian Hugh McKay, is a classic example of where modern-day politics is failing the public. The voters, the community at large, are just in despair about the idea that the adversarial character of our two-party system could infect a debate as serious as the debate over climate change and clean energy. So what, if anything, can be done to repair the rift between the electorate and the elected? Hugh McKay says what voters desperately want is a leader with vision. Vision's a very unfashionable word in politics at the moment, but part of that is about people yearning for political leaders to talk about the kind of society we want to become rather than always talking about the health of the economy, as though people are just consumers or workers in an economy, keeping the anthill moving, (laughs) rather than participants in a society that would have the values and the features and the way of life that we yearn for. That's it from us this week. We hope you've enjoyed our investigative special on the leadership spill burning down the house. Background Briefing's sound producer is Lila Shunner. Sound engineering this week from David Lawford, Isabella Tropiano, Jen Parsonage and Mark Cash. Fact-checking by Emma James. Reporters this week were Alex Mann, David Lewis and Sarah Dingle. Our supervising producer is Ali Russell. I'm Alice Brennan. If you like what you heard here, why not check out another ABC podcast? It's called The Party Room. Australia has a new Prime Minister, but the divisions in the Liberal Party are anything but healed. RN Breakfast's Fran Kelly and Patricia Carvelis from RN Drive cut through the spin and make sense of the chaos. 